Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, and welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. I'm so thrilled to be bringing you someone who is perhaps one of the most intelligent men I've ever met, Stephen Kotler. He's an award-winning journalist, a rock star author who works on the intersection of science, culture, and human performance. Stephen is probably the most read author for me personally in the last four years. His books like Abundance, The Rise of Superman, Bold, which he co-authored with Peter Diamandis, and more recently, Stealing Fire, were among my favorite books between um, 2011 and today. His books cover evolutionary theories, psychopharmacology, neuroscience, among many other things. Today you'll be listening to the catalytic event that got Stephen diving deep into the science of flow, which led him to creating the Flow Genome Project, which is changing the way companies and individuals around the world, from Silicon Valley executives to high-performance athletes, put themselves into peak human performance states. So let's get started with Stephen Kotler. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. Mind Valley community, welcome Stephen Kotler to the set. This is going to be such an interesting consciousness engineering conversation because this man is brilliant. His ideas on flow have influenced people for the last decade. And also, you may not know this, but Stephen Kotler is one of the authors I most prolifically read. There was Abundance, the book he co-authored with Peter Diamandis. I was, uh, I was a big endorser of that book. We introduced that book to the Mind Valley community and about a thousand of you bought that book. Thank then there you. was Bold, also co-authored with, with, uh, with Peter Diamandis. Bold was another incredible book. Many of you guys have read that. But there were two more recent books written by Kotler, Rise of Superman and more recently, Stealing Fire. And before I introduce you, Stephen, I want to tell you guys about Stealing Fire. This book, this book, Stealing Fire, is about the trillion-dollar altered states economy, where people are chasing the idea of using everything from neurotraining to nootropics to unique experiences like Burning Man to get into altered states to enhance their performance. It's an amazing book, and it actually inspired AFEST Montego Bay, which is on the topic of enhanced states of consciousness. So yes, this book actually inspired the theme for this AFES. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me, Vision. So um, there's so many things I want to ask you and so many things I bet you guys want to know, but I want to keep this conversation on the idea of limitless performance and flow states because you do incredible work in that area. So maybe let, let's, let's start with, um, with a question. How do you get obsessed with this topic. There were a bunch of different entrance points, but the most important point, so when I was 30 years old, I got Lyme disease, and I spent the better portion of three years in bed. And I was, uh, I was very, very ill. I was functional and conscious and able to walk around and move and do anything for about an hour a day. And the rest of the time I would lie on the couch and moan. Wow. And after three years, the doctors had pulled me off drugs. There was nothing else anybody could do for me. They didn't know if I was ever going to get any better. And um, I was very seriously considering ending my life. 
not for any other reason other than like I, they didn't know if I was ever going to get any better. And the only thing I was going to be at that point was a burden to my friends, my family. I could no longer work. I had bankrupted myself trying to find a cure. I was a mess. And in the middle of this kind of dark period, a friend of mine showed up my doorstep and demanded that we go surfing. And it was a, it was a ridiculous, it was a hysterically ridiculous request. I couldn't walk across a room, let alone go surfing. And she wouldn't leave my house, and she wouldn't leave my house, and she wouldn't leave my house. And after hours and hours and hours of this, I was like, you know, what the hell, Let's fucking go surfing today. I can always kill myself tomorrow, right? And they, uh, she literally, they had to carry me to the car, and they put drove me out to the Pacific Ocean. I was living in L.A. And uh, they gave me a board the size of a Cadillac, and the bigger the board, the easier it is to surf. And they had to basically walk me out to the break, and it was a low tide, a uh, very warm day, and the surf was so crappy, um, nobody else was out because the waves were so small. But, uh, and it had been about five years at that point since I'd actually been surfing. But uh, I was out there maybe 30 seconds, and a wave came. And muscle memory took over. I don't know what happened, and somehow I spun my board around, paddled a couple times, and popped up my feet and I popped up into a dimension I didn't even know existed. I felt like I had panoramic vision. I was having an out-of-body experience. And the most amazing part about this whole Mr. Lou experience is that I felt fantastic. I mean, I felt great. I felt alive for the first time in like three years. I felt so good. I caught four more waves that day. And after the fifth wave, I was disassembled. I was totally done. And they brought me home and they put me into bed. And I was so sick after that session that they had to bring me food for 14 days because I was too sick and weak to get out of my bed and make wow. it 50 feet away to my kitchen. And on the 15th day, the day I could walk again, I caught a ride back to the ocean, and I did it again. And again, I had this crazy altered state of consciousness. I didn't know what it was called at this point, but I had this crazy experience. Um, and, you know, I'm a hard, I'm a science guy. I'm a hardcore rational materialist, and I don't have quasi-mystical experiences while surfing that heal my, like, it, the whole thing seemed crazy to me. And over the course of six to eight months, I went from 10% functional back up to about 80% functional. And this was absolutely bizarre. Like, surfing was not a known cure for chronic autoimmune conditions. And on top of that, I was a science guy. I was a rational materialist. And so Lyme is only fatal if it gets in your brain. And I was, I assumed that the reason I was having these crazy quasi-mystical experiences, I didn't know what they were called yet, um, was because the disease had gotten into my brain. And even though I was feeling a lot better, I was absolutely certain I was dying. So I lit out on a giant quest to figure out what the hell was going on with me. And what I quickly discovered is these states of consciousness have names, or I would call them flow states. And what I also discovered is the same state of consciousness that had helped me go from you know, really subpar back to normal very, very quickly was helping normal people go all the way up to Superman just as quickly. Wow, now okay, so that, that story firstly is mind-blowing. It took you 14 days to recover from the first, the, the, the first wave. It did shortened, that, yeah. It did, shortened. did it get shortened? It did. So I, second time, it was probably 10 or 11 days, and then eight days, and then seven days, and five days, and then and three days. And then it just, it, then, it, then I was feeling just a lot better than I had been feeling. And then six months later, you had recovered from Lyme disease. Pretty much, And you were yeah. able to get off the couch and live a normal life. Yeah. And there's no signs of the disease right now? There's a couple of residual effects. Uh -huh. So the disease, it chewed, the part of your brain is called my fusiform gyrus. Uh -huh. So if I met you before the age of 30, right. I won't recognize your face. I'll have wow. to hear you talk. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get the voice eventually, but I will not, I won't recognize your face. There's a couple other things like that. I don't thermoregulate as well as I used to. Uh -huh. But other than that, I'm totally fine. That's incredible. Ha. By the way, guys, we are filming this in Montego Bay, Jamaica. So you are going to hear reggae music in the background. That's just Jamaica, which is where AFES uh, Montego Bay is happening. 
It's also the soundtrack of his life. It is. I, I don't like to go anywhere without a reggae band with me. I actually travel with a live reggae band. So you started studying flow states. Yeah. What did you find? So it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an interest. I started, stu I started working on flow in the late 1990s. And that was right when uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who was at the University of Pennsylvania at the time, he did some of the very first fMRI work on meditating monks. And, and he said some, of, some of the early work on flow was done then. And so I jumped right into the neuroscience kind of from the beginning and um, kind of started there. And, you know, at, the, at that point, we still, was it a mystical experience? What is it as a flow? Right? It took a while to kind of figure out that, you know, what we call quasi-mystical experiences in the brain are pretty much the same thing as flow states. They're very, they're, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. Certain experiences, there's, there's differences, but generally the knobs and levers being tweaked in the brain are the same. Um, that was some of the stuff we learned. It was, it was, it was progressive because the science has been blossoming, right? Neuroscience is moving exponentially, right? So we can peer under the hood of the brain for the very first time and we've gone from kind of still images back into mid-2000s all the way up to now we're getting moving images and we're getting network images so it's just getting richer and richer and richer it's really an exciting time to be doing this work so i heard you speak about flow states at summit series and you were speaking about um skiers and you've spoken about flow states in surface but what about people who have regular jobs how do they can they access flow states oh for sure um in fact uh the research shows that, by the way, that most of us spend about 5% of our work life in flow without even knowing it. By the way, just 5%. Yeah, let's, let's back up for a second. Okay. For your, let's just define flow for people in case they don't know what we're talking about. So flow, it is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And more specifically, it refers to those moments of kind of rapt attention, total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand that everything else seems to just disappear, right? Action and awareness will merge. Your sense of self will disappear. Time will pass strangely. It'll slow down occasionally. Sometimes it'll speed up. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about flow. And okay. so 5% of the time you're saying people are accessing these states, and these are states of hyperproductivity. Uh, yeah, and most of us don't even realize it. And the reason is... So flow is a spectrum experience. It's like almost any emotion. Take anger, right? You can be a little irked and you can be homicidally murderous, right? right? It's the same emotion, right? So you can have a state of microflow where a couple, flow has seven core conditions. This is how we define the state. And I mentioned some of them. Uninterrupted concentration in the present moment, the vanishing of self, time dilation, this time passing strange, and a couple others, loss of bodily awareness, et cetera. And so microflow is when a couple of those show up. It's what happens when, and everybody's had this experience at work, you sit down, you write, to write that quickie email, and you look up an hour later and you've written a whole huge essay, right? And you forgot time passed and you didn't even notice and you weren't even aware you had a body during that. You know, you come back and you're like, oh my God, I have to go to the bathroom so badly and I had no idea, right? That's a microflow state. Macroflow with full scale, you know, was often confused with a mystical experience up till fairly recently because it, it feels very mystical and otherworldly and strange things happen. You know, now we know why time passes strangely and when the self vanishes, like we understand the neurobiology. For a long time, people were like a state where your self disappeared, right? It was, it was like Buddhist babble. Nobody knew what right. the hell it was, right? Sounds interesting, but what are you actually talking about? Now we actually understand the, the mechanism underneath those experiences, which is really neat. Amazing, amazing. By the way, if you guys are listening carefully, you would have noticed the reggae music disappeared. But now we've but got now the you rain. can hear a downpour. Yeah. Hello, welcome Jamaica. So that's amazing. Um, so you mentioned seven different elements of flow. Let's go through those again. I found that fascinating. Uninterrupted concentration, okay. uh, the vanishing of your sense of self, um, 
time. What, what do you mean by that? So your sense of self, the, the kind of the consciousness, the eye behind the eyes, as they say. So in flow, one of the things that happens is the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right back here, <coughs> does a lot of higher cognitive functions, sense of morality, sense of will, complex decision-making, long-term planning. All this stuff is done by the prefrontal cortex. Your sense of self is generated by a bunch of different structures in your prefrontal cortex. And in flow, the brain performs an efficiency exchange. What it does is it says, I need a whole bunch of extra energy for attention. And the brain has a fixed energy budget. So it's, it's a limited energy supply. It's a huge energy hog, by the way. 25% of your body's energy at rest is used by your brain, right? So it's a huge energy hog. And so the first order of business for the brain, what it's always trying to do in every situation is be more efficient. So in flow, when you need all this focused attention in the present moment, the brain starts to shut down non-critical areas to save energy, right? So it shuts down a lot of structures in the prefrontal cortex. When that happens, our sense of self disappears. So the, the real, the big experience and what, why it helps performance so much is when your sense of self disappears, your inner critic, that nagging always on defeatist voice in your uh -huh. head, your inner Woody right. Allen, right? Woody goes silent. So as a result, risk taking goes up. Creativity, because you're no longer doubting every idea you have, goes up, right? You're literally getting out of your own way. So we experience it emotionally as liberation or as freedom, right? Same thing happens to your sense of time. Time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. So as parts of it start to wink out, we can't separate past from present from future. We're plunged into a state that researchers talk about as the deep now, right? It's the timeless moment. So that's a time so dilation, vanishing a self, uninterrupted concentration on the present moment, the merger of action and awareness. So like for a surfer, they become one with the wave. For a writer, I'll become kind of one with the now, text. What, what, what's going on there? What, what do you mean by you become one with the text? Well, it's, it's on, a, on a low level, it's the merger of action and awareness, right? So like the doer and the beer become the same thing. There's no separation. There's no like, I am the guy writing the book. There's no difference. I am the book and I, you know, you become the thing. Um, at a really extreme level, you start to get a feeling of what's called oneness with everything, right? Cosmic unity, it's a classic mystical experience. Why that happens is that transient hypofrontality, the deactivation of the prefrontal cortex, it goes farther into your brain, gets into a part of your brain called the temporal lobe, the right temporal lobe. This portion of your brain separates self from other. So people who have a brain damage or stroke to this portion of the brain, they can't do something like sit down on a chair because they don't know where their leg ends and the chair begins, right? Now, most of us don't think about the fact that we have this boundary around ourselves and it's flexible. So blind people can feel the sidewalk through the tips of the cane. A cane. It's because we can extend our senses. We can extend the boundary of self as well. Play a lot of tennis, you will start to feel, you can feel the world through the strings of your racket, right? That's it, the body. The, the sense of self being extended. So in deep flow states sometimes when action awareness really start to merge and focus gets really intense, this portion of the brain shuts down. And when it does, we can no longer separate self from others. So that at that moment, the brain concludes, it has to conclude, it's got no other choice, that at that particular moment, you are one with everything. And what's interesting about wow, that. Wow, wait, does that explain mystical experiences? Yes, yes, that's the, that's, so this is, I talked about Andrew Newberg a mm -hmm. second ago. This was his work at the University of Pennsylvania. And he, he discovered this uh, doing uh, spec scans. So early fMRI done mm -hmm. a little differently um, with radiological chemicals. And so it's a little bit uh, different, and but very precise. Um, he worked on Franciscan nuns mm -hmm. who experience uh, unio mystico, which is oneness with Jesus's love. 
or oneness with God's love, and Tibetan Buddhists who experience um, absolute unitary being, oneness with the universe, oneness with everything, right? And he discovered the same thing. Well, the same thing happens in flow. It's really common. Surfers used to talk about, dude, man, I was one with the wave, and everybody just thought they were being stoned right. surfers. No, it turns out they were talking about a physical, biological process. This happens. It happens fairly frequently. That's amazing. Okay, so that's four, and there's three more. Uh, the loss of body awareness. So I mentioned that, right? right? Um, you, you, you basically lose, lose sensation of your body, you forget to pee. Yeah, exactly. One hour later, you pain, really need to go to the bathroom. Pain sensations will go away, things along those mm -hmm. lines. Um, and that's what you were experiencing. Yes, that was one of the reasons I could surf, right? In so sick, once I kicked into flow, um, all the pain was flushed out of my body. By the way, I, quick explanation of, of how the hell did I cure myself with Lyme disease. So. When you move into flow, when kind of self disappears and, and time disappears, <clears throat> anxiety floods out of your system. And when you move into flow, all the stress hormones flood out of your system and they're replaced by these positive feel-good neurochemicals. So a couple things. Any autoimmune condition is essentially a nervous system gone haywire, right? So by resetting my nervous system back to zero, it got me back to normal, which is really, when you have a chronic autoimmune condition, one of the biggest problems is you don't, you have no idea what normal feels like after a while. You've been so sick for so long in so many different weird kind of ways, lots of different manifestations of it, you don't know what normal feels like. So just finding normal again, so you have a, like a baseline, ah, this is what reality feels like, is really useful. The other thing is all the neurochemicals that show up in flow, dopamine, norepinephrine, anandamide, serotonin, they're all immune system boosters. So we use flow, as I, I I mentioned this to you earlier, my wife and I, we run a dog sanctuary, we do hospice care and special needs care. We work with very sick animals. We use flow as part of our healing methodology. because so you can put the dog, dogs, by the way, can get into flow. Right. Mammals can get into flow. It stops, there's a line. Ferrets cannot, by the way. Right. They did this research at the University of Arizona. They took ferrets, dogs, and humans, and they ran them all on treadmills. And then they measured nandamine, which is one of the chemicals that shows up in flow. Shows up in dogs, shows up in humans, doesn't show up in ferrets. So ferrets apparently can't get into flow, dogs can. Um, but we'll put our dogs into flow states as part of the healing protocol, as part of working with them. Wow. And how do you put a dog in a flow state? Same way you do with a human. We use action give him a cell phone. I, I, I live in the, in the mountains, so we run them up and down cliff faces. If you search my name, Stephen Cutler, uh -huh. in the five dog workout outside television right. set a crew to my house, it looks ridiculous. It's the stupidest, funniest looking thing you're going to see, but that's what it looks like putting a dog in a flow state. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, so that's number five. What's six and seven? I think that was six. I th so, uh, absolute concentration in the present moment. Urge of action and awareness, loss of self, time dilation, loss of bodily function. Oh, um, I'm going to forget one, of course, but uh, the, the coolest one to me is it's, it's called a sense of control. And it's this feeling of being able to control forces that are beyond your control. So skiers in flow will find themselves doing things they couldn't imagine doing normally. Or writers or artists will create, you know, masterpieces and they have no idea where that's coming from. And it's the least understood of all of flow's characteristics. That's, that's fascinating. I think it comes from. So when we mm -hmm. move into flow, you get a lot of norepinephrine and dopamine. And these, these chemicals do a lot of different things in the brain. One of the things they do is they tune signal-to-noise ratios, which is a fancy way of saying they amplify pattern recognition, our ability to mm -hmm. link ideas together. So when you can make really fast connections between certain things, right, um, you get a little more control over it. I think that coupled with, so 
what we call time processing in the brain. Time in the brain mm -hmm. is often, not always, but most of the time, it's a measure of information processing. So what we call time in the brain is actually how much information am I processing per second? Well, that gets sped up in flow. Norepinephrine and dopamine amplify information processing. So you're processing more information per second and you're processing it more quickly, right? So essentially, um, they talk about it as a two-second advantage. You get essentially two seconds ahead of your normal thought process when you're in flow. And so think about that. Think about being two seconds ahead all the time. When they used to talk about Wayne Gretzky, the famous uh -huh. hockey player, the famous thing about, he used to say, he skate, skate to, to where the puck is going to be. Well, that's a two-second right. advantage. That's flow. That's pattern wow. recognition, being able to see the pattern in advance of it showing up. So, so a lot of people, so, so what did you say was the name for that, that thing? Sense of control. Sense of control. Okay, so a lot of people say that when they're in flow, they seem highly intuitive. They seem more, they seem more creative. Some people talk about tapping into um, um, the universe and downloading ideas. Is that a scientific explanation for what they yeah, could be experiencing? That, that, it's heightened information processing in the brain. So when in the state, we take in more information per second, so data acquisition goes up. We pay more attention to that information, so salience goes up. We find faster connections between that incoming information and other ideas, so pattern recognition goes up. And then we find faster connections between that incoming information and far-flung ideas, right. so lateral thinking goes up. So all, everything I just described, that's the creative process. So why do people feel massive amplified creativity and flow? Because the neurochemicals that underpin the state surround the creative process and amplify all of it. But, but you're saying that's the least understood well, yeah. aspect of it. Yes, life. and the other thing that happens is... This is number seven? No, but this is speaking to your last question. Um, one of the other reasons you have that download feeling. A, you're, it's faster information processing. You're also using more of the brain, so you're getting access to parts of the brain that you don't normally form connections. And so you're, instead of just like normal pattern recognition, you'll, it's closely related ideas. Here you're getting really far-flung, you know, things that you haven't thought about since childhood are suddenly getting referenced and drawn into the conversation. So you're getting more and more of that churn also shows up. That's amazing, because now, now, now it's starting to make sense, because I'm sure you guys have seen, uh, there are certain speakers, there are certain spoken word artists who, sorry, spoken word poets who get on stage and on the spot they know exactly what to say. And I've noticed there are moments when I'm on stage and I immediately know what to say and I'm thinking, where the hell did that come yeah. from? Flow. Is you, usually, the answer, usually the answer is the heightened inflammation. So do you believe in intuition? Yes, my actually, the, it's, so my next book we talked about a second ago, I, I've just finished a novel mm -hmm. and Peter and I are teaming up for another book after this. Right. And the book after that book is a book on intuition. So you're planning three books ahead? I have four or five actually. Is but, that book on intuition with Peter? No, it's just me. What's it called? I have no idea yet. <laughs> I don't know. You can't tap into your intuition. For I, that. I have no intuition but, about my intuition book. But but okay. So so, do you believe what mystics or you know um, intuits say about intuition that they are tapping into some form of universal energy, or do you believe it's really tapping into other parts of our brain? Have you given that some thought? Yeah, I've given it a lot of thought. So uh, you know, there are certain kind of foundational questions that are interesting to me, and one of them is I, and is where does the information come from? Right, because when we're in these states, we do tap into much richer information feeds than are normally accessible. And yes, I can absolutely explain a lot of it using the neurobiology, but there are times, and everybody's had this experience, where you start getting information that you don't know exactly where it's coming from, right? It feels mysterious. <clears throat> now, I have no idea where it's coming from. Do I think you're 
downloading the universe. I mean, people, you know, this is an ongoing argument. Jung says there's a collective unconscious. Teilhard de Chardin calls it the noosphere. But there's a there's a long kind of history of different lineage traditions and different psychological traditions that, that feel this way. I just think it's a mystery and it's a great question. And I, you know, I'm devoting a huge chunk of my life to trying to answer it. But I, I cannot. I reserve. I reserve judgment. I, I cannot wait for that book. Okay, what's the seventh element of flow? I'm absolutely blank. You, I'm totally <laughs> blank. I did too many speeches today. You've had me talking. For, I know this for guy's been long. amazing. This guy's been absolutely amazing. He uh, he he gave a one-hour talk today at A Fest, and he did a, a 19-minute conversation with the audience, and now he's doing an interview. Am I looking at the wrong camera? I am so out of flow. Okay, I'm going to say that. Again. You know what? You guys heard what I had to say. Just 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 let that be. So. Um, um, the seven item, okay. okay well, I'm now, not now, now, now they, they have to read your now book. Now I have to look it up. <laughs> what, what, what's the book where, where you go deep into the Rise of Superman. The Rise, the Rise of, of Superman. Superman. Awesome. That's an incredible in book. In chapter two, by the way. I can tell you where in the book it is. I just can't get there. Right Rise now. of Superman. Okay, so, so, so there's something else I want to ask you. Synchronicity. I've heard people say that when they are in flow, they notice synchronicity, right? If they are trying to grow their business, they are trying to write a book, they find the right answer, they find the right connection, and it just seems to come through a coincidence or, or, or synchronicity. Do you believe in that and what's going on there? Another one of these great questions that I can't, so yes. For, well, here's what I will tell you. In my own personal experience and in a lot of other people's experience, and it's, a, it's a, actually a great survey to, to be, some good research to be done because I don't, I don't think people have looked at it. Um, you do start to see more and more synchronicity. Now, that said, you have a lot of more dopamine and norepinephrine right. in your system, so you are seeing more patterns, it right? There's pattern more recognition. could be pattern yes. recognition that we just don't normally get. Now that said, what I found is the synchronicities you start noticing, well, like when you're really in a role and it's multi-day, you know, kind of thing, they start to get a little weird, right? They start, and I, right. and I always, I, I always feel like the universe is winking at you a little uh -huh. bit. It's the cosmic giggle, right? Because they're usually they're strange synchronicities, and again, could absolutely be pattern recognition. There's a great logical explanation, but it, there is something about it where there's a little bit of a mystery, and I don't think it's totally understood. I do. I think we need to reach for some kind of cosmic new age weird answer. No, I think we probably what the answer is that whatever this is, we haven't just learned how to measure it yet, or we don't know what it is, right? It's, I'm, I'm absolutely certain there's a biological answer, but is it just pattern recognition? I think it's a little more than that. By the way, it, it could be something mystical or, or wild or whatever, you know what I mean? Just because I'm a rational materialist doesn't yeah. mean I'm right, right? Right, so, 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 so let's go on to the next question. Now, we, we get what flow is, and I think this is so beautiful because you've given us a roadmap for recognizing when we're in these states. And I think just recognizing these states will probably help us induce them more often. For sure, absolutely. Just but how do we induce flow? How do we selectively get ourselves into flow? I think you are just screwed, actually. I mean, they might have some chance, but you, I, I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, so what we've learned, and this is, um, I'm proud of this because this is a lot of the work that uh, my organization, the Flow Genome Project, has, has been involved in. What we now know is that flow states have triggers, right. preconditions that lead to more flow. So, and there are 20 of them in total, and 
kind of the, the main thing to know is that flow follows focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So that's what these triggers do. They drive attention in the present moment. If I were to say it more formally, more technically, I would say, hey, these 20 triggers, and there are probably way more of them, which just 20 that we've discovered so far, the things that evolution shaped our brain to pay the most attention to. And they're all fairly obvious. So for example, for individual flow, risk is a flow trigger, right? So we see this with the action and adventure sports athletes. Cons flow follows focus, consequences catch our attention. Now here is how it applies to everybody else, right? Because most of us don't want to take physical risks to drive flow, right? So it turns out, doesn't, doesn't matter, emotional risks creative risks, intellectual risks, psychological risks, social risks. Social risks are phenomenal for flow. And so the brain processes physical danger and physical fear in the exact same structures. It processes social danger and social fear, which sounds totally weird. Like, why is that? And it's, it's the reason, by the way, that fear of public speaking is the number one fear in the world, and which is a weird thing from an evolutionary perspective. You'd assume it's like fear of getting eaten by a grizzly bear or right. something, right? That would make more sense. But if you go back more than 200, 300 years ago, if you screwed up socially and you got banished, it was the worst. You couldn't live outside the tribe. It was a capital crime, on top of which we're social creatures, so isolation is really difficult for us, right? So we process in the same way. So what does this mean? Organizationally, for example, I always say that oh, really good high flow organizations are organizations that have adopted that Silicon Valley fail forward, fail faster motto. And of course, that is an idea that it's about product development in rapid iteration and getting things to market very quickly, and that's true. But the other thing it's about is creating space so employees can fail, right? If you don't if you're if you're too scared to take chances at work, you're too scared to fail. Then you, there's not enough risk. So that motto kind of it's a it's a way of kind of creating a corporate risk taking environment. Um, but risk is something that's worth practicing also for flow. That's just one example of a bunch of flow triggers. But there's there's one we can go. From that's there. amazing. Okay, so so how could we engineer flow through social risk? Public speaking. For starters, sing-alongs, karaoke. I mean, we do karaoke. Is I mean, one of the reasons karaoke is such a high uh -huh. is because it's social risk. God, right? Karaoke. I, I have no fear with public I, speaking, but karaoke, man. Oh, I, I won't go. I won't go near it. Are you kidding? It's a nightmare. I'm the tone. Okay, but 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 let's say we go into a karaoke lounge. So let's say we go into a karaoke lounge. We, we someone gives it me, won't we, and we probably won't. But let's say we do, and someone gives you a mic. Are you saying we should just take that plunge and start singing, and that helps generate flow? Yeah. It will. The, the, flow, the flow risk for will. What? The but risk for what? Do I then toss away the mic and go and write my next book? Depends if you want to or not, right? I mean, maybe you'll just using the flow for a better karaoke performance. But yeah, I mean, you you're wired like me. You're incredibly practical. So you're like, <laughs> okay, I've got this flow state. I'm not going to waste it on karaoke. Bring on the work. <laughs> right, right, right. Smoking so, like a true workaholic. So, so we can try to do karaoke get into the flow state because the risk brings it out, yeah. and then we can go on to our computers. For sure. So this means that, now I'm, I'm thinking, should I install a karaoke machine in the lobby of my office and just have everyone attempt to sing before getting Well, you, I mean, by the way, you see it, I mean, stupid employee offsides, right? Trust falls, do you remember trust falls? Yes, What do you think yes. trust falls now are they about? they start to make sense. Right, it's the same, that's what you're doing. Right. Um, and the other thing is, so the main neurochemical we get from taking risks is dopamine. Mm -hmm. Dopamine is also 
a social bonding drug. So it's one of the drugs that underpins romantic love. So for team building, right, you do trust, you do trust falls on team building exercises, A, because it'll drive people into flow, but B, once you get the whole team into flow together, you've got all these powerful social bonding neurochemicals that are tightening the team and tightening group coherence, so, driving so, trust. So here's a question, all right? So we're talking about improving productivity. Now, Google did a study on company culture, and they found that one of the pre prerequisites for great company culture is a feeling of safety. But you're talking about fears generating yeah, flow. So, so how do you yeah, reconcile okay. both those ideas? Do you create safety or do you scare the well, okay, so, heck out of people? So it's a great question. And what, um, so then this is a really good point. Um, not always true, but mostly true. You want to feel safe and secure for flow because, so another of flows triggers, and this is often called the golden rule flow, it's the most famous of flows triggers, it's known as the challenge skills balance. So the idea here is we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. You want to stretch but not snap. So emotionally, that means flow exists not on but near the midpoint between anxiety and boredom. Boredom, not enough stimulation, I'm not paying attention. Anxiety, whoa, way too much stimulation. So anxiety is mostly norepinephrine in the brain. Right, so what you, the reason you need to make people feel when they talk about feeling safe and secure, they're saying pay them enough so that their basic safety and security needs are met. Right, like what we see is that income and happiness are totally together up till in America it's seventy thousand dollars. Right, in the globally it's twenty k. Right, the number globally is twenty k, but in America it's seventy seventy five k, and then they start to diverge. Right, so you have to that basics that first seventy five. That's about basic safety and security. It's about keeping anxiety levels low enough that you can get into that sweet spot between challenge and skills. Right, so you got to take care of basic needs, and you got to make people feel that way. They got to feel safe. So it's another thing. For example. Toxic workplaces, right? If there's lots of gossip, if there's lots of people aren't feeling safe, really horrible for flow, really horrible for flow. But once you establish that kind of baseline safety, mm -hmm. then right, you want to right, freestyle right. and take risks on top so of it. So you establish a baseline safety, then uh, then and then you you push people to go just a little bit above to create that that challenge. So work is not too easy, and that zone. It's the flow zone. It's the flow channel is the technical The flow term. channel, yeah. great, the flow channel. Now tell us about the work you're doing at the Flow Genome Project, that sounds fascinating. So um, uh, we're a research and a training organization. On the research side, we're one of the largest open source research projects into ultimate human performance. Uh, so, we're do so for example, we just launched this week um, a flow and creativity survey. It's a kind of machine learning, big data approach to flow and creativity. It's probably one of the deepest dives anybody's done into flow and creativity. And what we're really trying to figure out is, one, um, we're trying to get a more accurate, we know creativity spikes massively in flow and there's different numbers, 400 to 700% is, is where they pull in. But what we don't know is specifically which, those are general measures of creativity, right? So we're looking at is it idea generation? Is it creative problems? I mean, what specifically in creativity gets amplified and, and can we can put some numbers around that? And which of flow's triggers are most associated with creativity? Because wow. creativity is so critical in the workplace right now, 21st century skills, right? Define? Which which of the triggers? Um, well, we just we just kicked it you off. Just, you come right. come back to me in three months, I love, I'll give you an I answer. I love how you have such a data-driven approach to this whole thing. So a couple of questions. Your book, Rise of Superman, is about flow. Yeah and then stealing fires about altered states. How are flow and altered states similar and different? Okay, so um, 
altered states is a huge spectrum, right? It starts over here, you've got dreaming on one side, you've got schizophrenia on the other, and everywhere in between. So in the middle swatch of this territory is what's known as the ecstatic spectrum. So it, ecstasis, it's the root of the word ecstasy. It comes from the, it's a Greek term and it means to step beyond oneself. So in the, in the middle, there are flow states, states of awe, psychedelic states, um, meditative states, trance states, mystical states. These are all the ecstatic states of consciousness. Turns out, under the hood, neurobiologically, they're all very, very similar. Essentially, the same knobs and levers are being tweaked in the brain. Now, there are differences, right? Psychedelics are going to produce way more serotonin than a typical flow state kind of thing, but they're, they're very, very, very similar. So, <clears throat> flow is just one of this kind of panoply of ecstatic experiences um, that all kind of, you get the same kind of loss of self, loss of time, information, richness, they, they show up constantly. So flow, to me, and it, it flow, we got the farthest because flow science dates back the oldest. We've been looking at flow since the 1870s, right? So we got a better handle on it. But now we're really starting to get, you know, much better information about kind of the whole altered state spectrum. So I say rise is about one altered state of consciousness. And I see, um, I see how Stealing fire is the full kind of ecstatic spectrum. This is such, such, such an exciting discovery. I mean, it's such an exciting body of work. And that was Stephen Kotler, everyone. If you enjoyed that conversation, I totally recommend Stephen's books. Abundance, which he co-authored with Peter Diamandis, is an incredible book that talks about the future of humanity and all the amazing things emerging in the world. Bold is another really great book that's about how to leverage these exponential technologies to really expand your vision and your goals for yourself and do epic things in the world. Rise of Superman is about how to move yourself into a high-performance being. And Stealing Fire is about the trillion-dollar altered states industry. It's about how everyone from Marines to neuroscientists are experimenting with everything from neurofeedback to psychedelics to put themselves into states of mind where they can access higher levels of performance. So check out those books. I think you're absolutely gonna love them. If you want to see a full interview with Stephen Kotler, plus access trainings, like really powerful, beautiful trainings, which I've had with many other leading edge authors whom are personal mentors of mine, consider becoming a Mind Valley Tribe member. You get access to hundreds of hours of content and access to Mind Valley's events around the world. So the conversation doesn't just end here. Finally, thank you for joining us. Leave a review and check out Mind Valley on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Mind Valley to get access to hundreds of additional short form three to five minute videos from the world's leading thinkers in human performance. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode coming up soon.